0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Uh, Caroline, I don't know about you, but I have a pretty long history with bobby pins mm-hmm. because I started taking ballet when I was in uh, first grade and, of course, got to have that hair mm-hmm. up in the bun and even today, I would I would go through some phases where I'd, I wouldn't use bobby pins, but now I'm like bobby pin crazy. Yeah. They're everywhere in my apartment. They're in the bottoms of all of my bags. Mm-hmm. There are actually, it's a minimal bobby pin day for me right now. There are only three
1: <laughs> in my hair.
0: But they're probably like, there's probably a trail of them.
1: I leave a trail. Yeah. There's one outside my apartment door right now. And I'm like, Ew, I don't know if that's really mine, but I assume it is because it's right next to my welcome mat. I don't want to pick it up though. Well, cause it doesn't matter because you can just go to the drugstore and buy another pack of 3,000. Right. And rapidly lose all of them.
0: Yeah. I'm always, I'm always mystified by, by the strange places that I will, I will find them. I left one even the, like a week ago. On um, our producer, Jerry's. Hey, Jerry. Jerry's desk. just It was just there. Did it disappear? Uh, no, she gave it back to me. <laughs> and I probably put it in my the, hair. The so one and only bobby pin that has ever been recovered in the history yes. of humanity. Uh, but not only do we both have extensive personal histories with bobby pins. Come to find out, folks. Yes, we are doing an entire podcast on bobby pins. That's right. Because... The history of these pins goes way back, and there's actually some pretty cool stuff in there. Tell me about ancient hairpins, Caroline. <laughs> I will. Wow, our listeners. I actually majored in ancient bobby pins. Ooh.
1: Yeah, um, so, early hairpins. Let's go, let's go really early. They have been found during archaeological digs in parts of Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. And of course, we are not talking about the metal goodie pins. We are talking about pieces made from wood, bone, thorns, or stone. And the whole stone thing gives me pause because I'm like, how do you, how do you, do you have to like really finely chisel that? Like, no, I'm you, sure. How
0: do you get a stone pin anyway? I tell you, what, a stone hairpin that could double as a nice weapon of choice, <laughs> right in the old eyeball. A lot of times, they were also crafted from metal. And as early as 2000 BC, the Greeks were making decorative gold hairpins. Um, there have also been Roman hairpins found from the third and fourth centuries, made from bronze. Um, also, some gold and silver hairpins found in fourth-century tombs in Rus- southern Russia. And when Archaeology Magazine was uh, reporting on these tombs, they pointed out that uh, one of the woman's remains. Had had a large bronze or silver hairpin that was found in her left eye socket. And so the archaeologist said that it could mean that she was either sacrificed by the eye. I don't know, an eye sacrifice? That's a, what a way to go. Oh, or yeah. Oh, wait, I'm thinking of it. Yeah, that's how that happens. All the way back through the brain. <laughs> or it could have just fallen into her eye as her body decayed. Either whi- which... Either which, are, which explanation do you like better? Um, I'm going to say sacrifice because that's just kind of hardcore. That's pretty, pretty gory. It's a pretty intense historical story. Um, and not only were these hairpins used to just hold in a hairstyle, there were also hair pieces. There would be headdresses. In later times, uh, there would also be hats that you would hold in place. Um, and they were really big in. Asia.
1: Yeah, actually, the two-pronged hairpin may have emerged in Asia. Um, some Chinese hairpins with two pins uh, date back to 300. The U300. Uh, they were made from bone, horn, wood, and metal. And it turns out that nowadays China and Korea are the top producers of commercial hairpins.
0: So, keeping it, keeping it in Asia. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. Um, and I also found it interesting the differences, the stylistic differences among different Asian countries. For instance, uh, ancient Chinese hairpins were often pretty fancy. They would have flowers, dragons and gemstones inlaid. Japanese hairpins tended to be very simple. Uh Korean hairpins tended to be thicker and they would be wooden ones inlaid with ivory, silver and mother of pearl. Asia knew how to do the hairpins right. Yeah. But again though, considering the number of hairpins that I lose, what I <laughs>
1: I know. Well, that's like, that's like me buying Ray-Bans. Like it's only going to end in tragedy because I'm just going to lose them or sit on them or something. So me owning like bone hairpins is... I'm just going to sit on it and
0: break it <laughs> and hurt your bottom. <laughs> um, and these were also important not just to to fix people's hair, but they were very symbolic in Chinese culture. For instance, uh, there was a rite of passage for girls at 15 called the hairpin initiation that signified that they had become women and they could finally start using these hairpins and that they were old enough to enter into marriage. And this was the female counterpart according to hairpinmuseum.org. To a hat ceremony that 18 year old Chinese boys would have.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they have significance in marriage, death, the whole nine yards. So during the engagement, the woman typically gives her fiance the hairpin as a pledge instead of the more, you know, like what we think of as the man giving the woman the ring. And then after the wedding, the groom puts the pin back in his new wife's hair as a symbol of I don't know. Your hair needs to be fixed. <laughs> um, if they were apart, often the two-pin hairpin would be split in half. And so when they were reunited, they would just be like, oh, you are my long-lost husband. Look, our pins
0: fit back together. Oh, like those those uh, those old-school locket, the, the heart <laughs> yeah. locket friendship necklaces? Best friend. I always wanted one of those. No one ever gave me one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I gave one to my friend Jessica. I think we wore it, like, once. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Well.
0: I bet that was fun. Um, but uh, it makes sense, though, that there is all of the significance with the hairpins for Chinese marriages um, and, and death. Because, in fact, the Chinese word for a married couple means the relationship between the husband and wife is just like they tie their hair together. They are interwoven like that.
1: The hair is very important. They're like a braid. I think it's kind of sweet. Kind of sweet. Yeah, and, and at funerals, mourners are
0: not allowed to wear pins. Mm-mm. So, no, uh, no fanciness. Yeah, and in addition to, um, signifying, say, a girl's maturity or someone's relationship, these hairpins would also signify your wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, wealthy folks would wear hairpins made of gold, silver, and jade, whereas poorer ones, you and I, Caroline, we probably wear don't <laughs> be wearing wooden or bone hairpins, old bone hairpins, or or we might just have one silver hairpin that we would keep for the, our entire life. Can you imagine? Can
1: you imagine? I mean, think of how many <laughs> how
0: many bobby pins we've lost collectively
1: together, just the two of us? Well, a million. If
0: we only had access to one, you know, we'd probably. You probably cherish it more. And and just wear very simple hairstyles. Yes. But let's cross let's cross over from the east to the west.
1: Yeah, uh, starting in the mid 19th century, they were mass produced in the U.S. These these metal pins were, and there was this great description in a, a thesis we read, "The Bobby Pin Revealed" by Emmy Miller. This is from 2006. There's this little segment of a description in 1854 to British industrialists about how uh, these bobby pins are produced, and the language is is great. And they describe how it's done, and then they're <laughs> they're like, oh, and then it is quite finished. <laughs> I like how they describe it. But anyway, you know, the wire is cut, the ends are attached, and they were making one hundred and eighty per
0: minute, which is, uh, I guess, I guess that's good for pin making. Oh yeah, how about this? Uh, by eighteen sixty three, this is also coming from that that thesis. The British manufacturing of hairpins was estimated at twenty million per day. We were going gaga for hairpins even in the nineteenth century, and apparently there were parliamentary restrictions that were placed on the sale of pins there would only be certain days when they would uh, allow these hairpins to be sold i guess to conserve metal and it's uh, the source of the phrase pin money in which women would save up their cash to buy pins when they would become available and pin money became like a catch all for you know a little allowance that wives would be given by their generous husbands to go buy a little sweet something for themselves <laughs>
1: Exactly. So around about the 1910s, uh, bobby pins, that phrase entered the lexicon as bob haircuts started to become more popular. And actually in England, they were called
0: grips. So
1: there you go. that They did not pick up the bobby pin name right away.
0: And we've been talking about hairpins, which are typically the, those U-shaped 2 prong pin. But now we get to the actual invention of the bobby pin. Those, The ones that we use, they've got the wavy side and the straight side. Um, and Louis Marcus, a San Francisco cosmetics manufacturer, is credited with inventing the bobby pin to hold flappers' hair back in the 1920s. And uh, according to his obituary in the LA Times, they originally sold... Two for thirty-five cents, which is probably kind of pricey mm-hmm. at the time. Um, and his family and friends encouraged him to call it the Marcus pen because he's Lewis Marcus, but he was like, "Nope, it makes more sense to name it for bobbed hairstyles." So we've got bobby pins. Yeah,
1: they were pretty. Yeah, this is. I mean, people were going crazy for the bob haircuts at this time. So,
0: these bobby pins were pretty all over the place. I'm sure,
1: and I'm sure they were on the floors all over salons and stuff back then, too. People were just losing them.
0: Yeah, because, uh, this is from 1924 to 1925. During some weeks, because bobbed hairstyles were so, uh, so popular, salons in large U.S. cities were giving out more than a thousand bobbed haircuts per day. Skidoo! (laughs) Trying to think of some of our flapper slang. That's right. Bobbed haircuts were the bee's knees, kids. I
1: love it. Um, okay, so going forward to World War II, they were considered. These bobby pins were considered war victims because they needed the metal for other, you know, more important, less hairstyle-related things like planes. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, like planes, like guns. But yeah, substitutes were found for bobby pins with the idea that they will find better use in a bomber.
0: Yeah, there are these reports, too. Like, for instance, uh, in in 1943, the New York Times feverishly reported that a rumored ban on bobby pin production was false, but it was still hard for manufacturers to get their hands on enough steel wire. But then in 1944, New York Times reports that manufacturers aren't able to purchase the steel wire necessary for production and that those bobby pin machines have been appropriated by the government to manufacture aircraft Cotter pins, so there was a pin short. Not only ladies didn't have access to their to their silk stockings, no bobby pins. How did we keep it together? It's uncivilized world. Yeah, and on top of all this, bobby pins. The popularity of them gave rise to a condition reported on in Life Magazine in October 1947. Uh, and I also saw some other, like a medical journal, reporting on really? this. Yeah, about something called bobby pin teeth. Please inform us of what bobby tragic. pin teeth Tragic. It's tragic. Okay,
1: so the the headline on this Life magazine story in 1947 about bobby pin teeth, Dentists discover the high cost of a coiffure. Oh, gosh. So, bobby pin teeth is basically you get notches in your upper front teeth where you would hold the bobby pin while you're styling your hair. And... <laughs> These dentists are finding them in many of their, quote-unquote, feminine patients. Yes,
0: the feminine patients, not the masculine patients.
1: But, uh yeah, so dentist Walter Cogswell out in Colorado looked at a bobby pin under a microscope because, by God, he was determined to get to the bottom of this, saw that they had sawtooth edges capable of scratching tooth enamel and proceeded to do a study of women in Colorado, finding that in Colorado, in particular, bobby pins caused the notches in the teeth 60% of the time.
0: Yeah, cause they would, uh, they would put them in their teeth and hold them with their teeth to open, open the bobby pins up. I always just slip my thumb. Yeah, I do too. In the middle. Which is why my teeth, I don't have bobby pin teeth, obviously. Thank God. I was, uh, researching this episode on bobby pins while I was at home visiting my parents, actually, and, I asked my mom um, if she had heard of Bobby Pimp Teeth, to which she said, Oh, honey, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> and, and but she knew what it was. No, she didn't know uh, what okay, it was. Okay. But I was like, yeah, this is from 1947. And she was Um, I was like, I know mom, but maybe one of your really old friends knew or something one (laughs) quink. Uh, but, uh, to solve this problem, the dentist, Walter Cogswell developed the Bobo pin, which was a plastic device. Uh, essentially it was, it looks kind of like a mouth guard with a hook on the end of it. So you can, you put it in your mouth safely and then there's, you can open the Bobby pin on the, on the hook and save your teeth. They should have just suggested that people open it with their thumbs. I yeah. just feel like, hey, <laughs> I just feel like listen. it's a free solution. I mean, dentist Cogswell wanted to try to make a book, alright. I don't blame can't, him. Can't blame him.
1: Yeah, and then as hairstyles change, you know, we go into the 1950s with the Bobby Soxers and their cute little ponytails. So, you know, more women were using hairpins to anchor their pin curls or secure their hair rollers, or, you know, just holding back shorter strands when they wore those cute little ponytails.
0: Yeah, and there was a pretty booming industry that developed around bobby pins. Uh, StayRight was the first corporation uh, producing bobby pins in 1917 in the U.S., and their first product was a patented hairpin made of celluloid. And then by 1921, they developed a method for manufacturing hairpins from wire. Right, and just
1: like we mentioned earlier, uh, during World War II, Stairite actually shifted their production uh, to supply metal for the Defense Department. So they were giving them metal safety clips and arming wire for bombs. So even companies had to shift gears. Mm-hmm.
0: But these days, the, the all of those bobby pins that we are using and losing uh, are probably coming from, well, as we mentioned earlier, China and Korea, which are two of the, the main hubs for it. Um, but there is more meets the eye mm-hmm. when it comes to Bobby Pins, at least according to this pretty intense thesis that we mentioned earlier from NYU student. What was her name? Miller I, I don't, M. e Miller. Um, because she talks about how like the 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 crux of the thesis was examining the Bobby Pin in terms of how you know it's it's so useful and yet the point of it is to to be hidden from view. Yeah. It holds our hair in these fancy ways so that we present a, a refined public persona, but the secret of our beauty, such bobby pins, are not revealed. Does that about sum it up? I think that sums it up. I, God bless you, Kristen. I, I could barely make it through that study. It was there was a lot there was a lot of import placed on the humble bobby pin, but I do think that uh, the ubiquity of them and how long that we've been using them—we long, long time ago did a couple episodes um, on the podcast about women and hair. Um, but I, I think the fact that they're kind of everywhere is, is yet another lesson in um, how much value we place on we look and specifically like how our hair is looked looks and how precisely we try to to craft it, to mold it into um, into these different shapes.
1: Yeah. And Miller does point out that the changes in hairpins kind of correspond to what's going on in society. So, you know, like we talked about, they start out as ornamental with Jade and Mother of Pearl and all that stuff. But she says this tendency towards aesthetic craftsmanship changes as modernity and industrialization are on the rise.
0: Yeah, um, she says, indivisibility allows for the potential of transforming the average head of hair into something beautiful. Ah, this is the tradition of the bobby pin. But another tradition of the bobby pin is, uh, that we lose all of them. Yeah. They, I don't know where they go. I don't know, but uh, one of the inspirations for this episode on bobby pins came from a blog post over at the Frisky by Winona DeMeo ediger, And she had five theories for what happens to bobby pins, including just like an alternate universe where they go. Um, <laughs> and they're the dominant species. Uh, probably they're at the bottom of her purse. And there's, because, you know, every time I check the bottom of a, a bag of mine, like, there are at least, like, a couple. Yeah. But then that still leaves so many unaccounted
1: for. I know. She, uh, she posits that they could self-destruct. They just dissolve after one use. That they are stolen by gnomes, maybe, who come in in the night. Or that they're just lost in her, in her thick hair. They're still in there. Yeah, that does happen to me That's pretty a-
0: regularly, <laughs> where I'm, I take my hair down, I think it's down, I start brushing it, and then more start flying out. Um, And there are other uses, too, other uh, aside from lock picking. I think that's the classic alternate use of a bobby pin is to pick a lock, which I've never successfully done. I haven't either. I've tried. I have totally tried before. I haven't been able to do it. It's easier with a credit card.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. Stuff mom never told you. Um, yeah, this, there was a April 1960 story in the New York Times about how countless or maybe like 17 lives were saved when a pilot used a flight attendant's bobby pin to short circuit the electrical system of the nose wheel when he discovered it was jammed. And I probably should have asked my pilot father what those words mean together because I don't know, but he saved lives. Everybody was saved. Thank you, flight attendant. Uh, and then there was a 1961 article describing how a bobby pin can be used to construct. And we're I, if listeners out there know what this, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. But a bobby pin can be used to construct a sensitive mechanical timer for determining exactly
0: when an animal was trapped in a cage. Well, I'm going to use that this weekend <laughs> for sure. Um, they can also be used to aid viewing specimens on slides, uh, countless other things. Yeah. I'm sure. Um securing uh your shirt when your button falls off. Oh yeah. I I've done that. Yeah, they're great substitutes for paper clips. Mm-hmm. Oh man, where would we be without Bobby pins? Um there is also a sweet nostalgic look at Bobby pins uh in the Houston Chronicle. This was written by Priscilla Marie Hubenak, and she talks about how her mother always bought the same type of Bobby pins, um always from the same pharmacy until it closed, and she writes um a new card of bobby pins would have the whole lot of them lined up like soldiers waiting for action. They were shiny black metal, the universal style, with a slim straight back and the wavy extension metal at the top. Each of the metal had an elongated rubber tip and a black that was a shade brighter than that of the metal. The rubber tips would eventually fall from use, and these defrocked soldiers became candidates for other uses. And she just writes about how, like, her mom just used them everywhere. And unlike us, where we lose them, we're like, oh, whatever. No, her mom would keep track of them and hold on to them and and now whenever she sees a bobby pin she thinks of her mom yeah i think it's really sweet one thing that we didn't mention was
1: the fact that oh, i don't know about you but i've been putting them in wrong my entire life
0: oh yeah that's a good point cuz speaking of yeah she talks about that that wavy the smooth side and then the wavy side how are we supposed to put bobby pins in
1: well, this blew my mind, but apparently you're supposed to put the wavy side down against your skin, and it locks the hair in place better. And so ever since we've been reading this bobby pin stuff, I've been doing that, and I realized it does like stick in there better, and it's not sliding around. Does it
0: feel different when you're putting them in? Is it like it you're does. trying to put it's, them in with it? The- well,
1: it's kind of almost harder to push it through. Like I always pin my bangs back because they're obnoxious. Um, so it was actually a little bit harder to push it through, but it's not moving.
0: Well, whatever you do, just don't open that bobby pin with your teeth. you'll get bobby pin teeth. I know. I don't need another thing for my dentist to yell at me about. (laughs) He's going to give you a Bobo (laughs) pin if you're not careful. I hope so. Uh, so that's all we've got on bobby pins, and I hope that you were impressed that we even had that much on bobby (laughs) pins. I first suggested this to Caroline, I was like, hey, we should, let's do something on bobby pins, and I could hear you through your email, (laughs) your eyebrow raising, like, what? Bobby pins? Well, it was really because Kristen sent me
1: that thesis, and I was like, I'm too tired to read this. Her wording is very, um,
0: thick to wade through. There you go. That, that thesis. I hope that that thesis writer is not listening right now. ME, if you are, I hope you got an A because it was thorough. So, write us about your Bobby pins. Anyone else who has theories of where Bobby pins go? Guys, I would like to know this too because, you know, I, men in my life have commented <laughs> as well on the trail of Bobby pins that I sometimes leave behind so curious to know everyone's thoughts on that mom stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters and i'll read a couple right after this quick word from the sponsor that brought us this episode of stuff mom never told you and that is audible.com which is offering a free download of one of its hundreds of thousands of titles for stuff mom never told you listeners all you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuff mom and choose a title download it for free one title that we think you might enjoy for a little bit of a literary flair and since we're talking about bobbed hair flappers and such you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuff mom and download flappers and philosophers. By F. Scott Fitzgerald, one of the premier writers of the flapper era, him and his wife Zelda Fitzgerald, who I love. I'm sure she had all sorts of body pens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you need to head on over audiblepodcast.com slash stuff mom. Try it out. Get your free audio download and enjoy. So now back to our Letters. Yeah, here's one from
1: Amelia. This is funny. I, I like her subject line. It's asymmetrical 90s boobs. So that gives you an idea of what she's talking about here. Uh, she said that I quite enjoyed your podcast on asymmetrical breasts. And what made me laugh the most was that in the 90s, when that men prefer symmetrical boobs study came out, I got my right nipple pierced because I thought that my right breast was too small and I wanted to make them look more even. I'm not sure why I thought that decorating one breast was going to help, but I had it for a number of years before I took it out. My right breast is still slightly smaller, but now I don't really care. So
0: thank you, Amelia. I've got an email here from Andrew, and this is in response to our episode on sleepovers. And he writes... Although completely out today, I have never had the heart to tell my dad that my 16-year-old self had his first romance under my dad's roof with a friend from swim class who spent the night regularly. At the time, the thought just never would have occurred to him, and I know he would have been horrified knowing that all of his careful planning and parenting in that area was for naught. My parents have now refined their opposition to co-ed sleepovers in favor of a policy that takes into account all factors of the situation. Two years ago, my brother and I spent the 4th of July holiday. My parents, I brought my boyfriend and my brother brought his girlfriend. My dad, now wise to everybody's preferences and predilections, announced that my brother and I would be sharing a room and that my boyfriend and my brother's girlfriend would, in a hilarious twist be co-ed bunking in the guest room so thank you for that story Andrew and thanks to everyone else who's written in momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send us your letters and you can head over to Facebook like us if you will leave us a comment send us a message there or tweet us at momstuffpodcast and you can also follow us on tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com and if all, all that is not enough for you you can get it a little smarter by heading over to our website it's how howstuffworks.com